1: real vision daily briefing live without a net i am joined today by ed harrison getting the old band back together once again
2: good to see you billy ray how am i supposed to say it Yeah. You know? <laughs> usually i'm the you one know, by the sit. way just so you know ash i, I didn't tell you but i, I got it here uh, <laughs> look good
1: that's what i am supposed to be telling you looking good billy ray <laughs> looking good lewis uh <laughs> Talking about looking good and looking bad, uh, let's talk about what's happening in capital markets, in macro, in digital assets, the good, the bad, the ugly. It's been an eventful 24 hours.
2: Yeah, you know, I saw what uh, you and Rao put together uh, as an insert for the uh, daily briefing that we had yesterday that Jack was running. I thought that was interesting. You know, Um I don't have a view just in terms of uh, holding for the long term, hodling, if you will. But I think what Ralph said yesterday made a lot of sense to me in terms of the price action. We were yeah. clearly in oversold territory. I would say once we got even to the forty thousand level, you know, we dipped down uh, to where uh, Bitcoin was uh, cut in half, and uh, it was clear that we were going to get a bounce. We did get a bounce. Uh, that bounce took us all the way to 42,000 today before we had some more regulatory um, headwinds uh, in the form of the US Treasury.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And let's just run through some of the numbers here uh, to bring people up to speed. Currently, uh, as we do this live here at about 4.17 Eastern time, Bitcoin trading at 40,442. And to review the events uh, of the last 24 hours, I believe we had a sell off of approximately forty percent uh and now bitcoin up uh about nine percent uh recovering you know to your point, it would seem like a bit of a, a pile on from uh u s treasury coming on uh some news uh, out of China. We'll talk about that in a few minutes uh, but you know obviously a lot of negative news and it's interesting uh you talk about it being uh potentially oversold yesterday um you know I I try not to get too into the weeds on the technical side, but it certainly did feel like it was oversold based on some indicators, Fibonacci retracements, and that sort of thing. Um, But bigger picture, it's interesting to me that you get more bad news piling on today, uh, and yet the price rises uh, somewhat, almost 9%. Um, That, to me, suggests that maybe that there is some consolidation. But look, we have to say it quite bluntly and quite directly, crypto markets, uh, Bitcoin, uh, and other protocols, these are incredibly, incredibly volatile assets. Uh, so the next direction uh, could be up, could be down. We know that uh, you know, as something uh, like a billionaire jumping on Twitter maybe and uh, tweeting something out has an influence on the price. Uh, so you know, folks have to be careful.:
2: Definitely. And uh, you know, I think there was one piece of news that Diego Perillo, who is, seems to be a bit of a Bitcoin skeptic crypto skeptic all around, said. And that's all about uh, sizing. And you know, obviously, if you're emotional about something, then that's a suggestion, or that's a, a hint to you that you're probably not sized correctly. Uh, because when you take the emotion out of it, uh, then you can let uh, the winners ride. I saw something, actually, that Whitney Tilson wrote earlier today, and he was talking about speculative, speculation versus uh, buying and holding. He was talking about letting your winners uh, run. You know, If you are a buy and holder and you're an investor for the longer term, you want to let your, your, um, your winners run. But if you're purely speculating, you have no attachment to the asset or the asset class, then obviously, you know, when the going gets tough, you want to cut your losses short, because you're speculating. You, you, uh, you, there's not a fundamental position. That's when you want to uh, cut it short. So I thought that was a good distinction that he made when he was thinking about uh, crypto, actually, in this particular case.
1: Yeah, I think so much uh, there, you said, is spot on. I really enjoyed uh, that conversation with Diego Correa. And as I said at the end, look, even if you don't fundamentally agree with Diego on his position on Bitcoin per se, there was an incredible amount of wisdom uh, that he dispensed on things like position sizing, how to think about markets the framework for thinking about risk, understanding emotions. It was a master class uh, from someone who spent a lot of time on the sell side, even more time on the buy side, a very senior, very experienced person uh, telling folks really the way markets work and what has worked for him. Look, the thing about markets is when you've been in them for a long time, particularly in the kinds of roles uh, that Diego Perea has been in, uh, you get whooped, you get beat up. And those lessons, when you make those mistakes- those costly mistakes, you feel them; they resonate with you, and you think through how you can maintain upside and limit downside. So, I thought it was just an absolute masterclass. Again, even if you don't agree with his thesis on Bitcoin, a masterclass in investing and how to think about markets.
2: Definitely. Now, you know, uh, let's make this a, a connection of the events of the day to the macro uh, by talking about sort of the framework. Uh, that that you know, I'm thinking about in particular. I'm thinking about uh, what's happening in the in the context of the interregnum. I think when you and I spoke last time, I probably uh, posited that there's an interregnum period. We had the reflation trade in in January and February. Uh, bonds sold off during that period, while even the most speculative of assets went up. A, a technology soared and the whole concept was is, is that we were going to have reflation in the economy when it reopened and that was going to be very positive uh, for shares particularly shares that are the growthiest of of stocks uh, but you know once we got to March and April we entered sort of this interregnum I would call it and this is where we're waiting, basically, for the full reopening. We're in the midst of the full reopening now. It's just starting. We're just starting to get the data associated with the full reopening. And so it's causing a lot of gyrations. And what we've seen, I think, just from a macro lens perspective, is that uh, we've seen bonds rally. Uh, They've been range bound in sort of the the 150 to 160 level for US 10-year treasuries. And we've seen While that's happened, a sell-off in the most speculative of uh, stocks, uh, the likes of Tesla, ARK Invest has seen their prices drop in their ETFs. And of course, uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have taken it on the chin. I would say exactly for the same reasons, is is that you're seeing people reassess uh, where we're going in terms of the, the growth paradigm. So when I see what happened yesterday it was sort of a culmination of a lot of different things coming together. And then when we look at today and the price action, interestingly for me, the thing that stands out as usual, since I'm a a, a credit guy, is bonds. You know, The US 10-year was down to 163.2. That's 3%. And when you look at the indices and how they perform today uh, in equities, uh, it it was NASDAQ up 1.8%. It was S&P up 1%. Dow up 0.5%, exactly what you would think when you believe that uh, we're, we're still in a period in which the toggle is interest rates. So yeah. that's to me the background for everything that's coming together today.
1: Yeah, you just said uh, there are some, some extremely important points. Let's unpack it a little bit. Uh, interregnum, if I remember correctly, it's the period in between kings. So it's this idea, or queens, uh, that you have this period uh, of transition between regimes. You have this transition uh, between one period and the next. Obviously, uh, the big picture here uh, on U.S. Uh, treasury yields, let's look at the 10-year yield, for example, just to unpack some of what you said. Coming uh, from about 50 basis points uh, at August it, at the trough, uh, right now, as you said, uh, one spot, 63 um, but again, that's a little bit of a rollover in yield. And, and the points that you made really about, and break this down for folks, talking about the rotation trade uh, between growth and value and what it means and how you're able to tease out uh, that from the NASDAQ, S&P, and Dow relative positions.
2: Yeah, so what I see on a consistent basis is as uh, yields go up or down more than two or three basis points. Let's say five basis points, as it was today, as an example. What you'll see is a um, a, a change in the level of uh, equities that is uh, goes from the least sensitive to interest rates to the most sensitive. So the Dow is known as the uh, lowest beta of the three indices. The S and P is sort of the normal beta. And then you have the highest beta index, which is the Nasdaq. And so, when interest rates go down, then you would expect the Nasdaq to outperform relative to the Dow, relative or relative to the S and P, relative to the Dow. And that's exactly what we've seen. And this is a trend that we see over and over, irrespective of whether we see gains or losses. It's that sort of in concert trading between bonds and stocks that tells you that the that the uh, the discount rate, uh, which is the 10-year uh, T-bond, T- that's really a toggle for how people are starting to think about
1: the economy. Yeah, such an interesting point. Uh, Ed, I'm sure you probably know the questions are already rolling in. Uh, let's hit a couple of these, because uh, they're across the board, and as always, very uh, insightful and interesting questions. The first question comes to us, uh, something that we were just talking about, Ed, off camera, uh, from uh, Ricky Martinetti, Yeti. Uh, could Ash and Ed cover China's comments this week on crypto and why they feel there was a, cl- a flash crash yesterday, which has rebounded very quickly? We've talked a little bit about the second point. But Ed, I know you have some insights uh, on China. Give us your thoughts there and summarize for people who may have missed what happened.
2: Yeah, so what happened is the Chinese just re- reiterated policy. Uh, they said that uh, you know, we want you to steer clear of uh, crypto, uh, be cautious. You know, it, it, I'm sort of paraphrasing what they said. Uh, they weren't saying, per se, that uh, we're going to ban your ability to mine crypto because, you know, actually, most of the mining is in China right now. Uh, right. But people took this to be a warning that there was a regulatory risk associated with uh, crypto assets in China and it just fueled the fire you know the momentum was down and so that uh precipitated a a, a sort of what i would call a, a washing out move that was the deep oversold levels that we got and uh i don't ascribe any sort of long term significance to the statement i think it was just a catalyst for a washout and now we've rebounded from that
1: yeah you know it's so interesting one of the phenomena that i've noticed uh from what happens when news comes out of China is that there are there tend to be a series of different reactions to it, and I think it's because U.S. media has a very difficult time uh, understanding the regulus regulatory and policymaking framework uh, in China. Obviously, these are statements that are released in Mandarin uh, and not English. And what I saw yesterday was very interesting. Uh, you know, initially the reaction was, "Oh my God, there's new guidance from Chinese regulators. This changes everything." And then the next phase was, "Nope." Everybody, calm down. This is just a recapitulation, a reiteration uh, of earlier guidance. As it turns out, later in the day, uh, it became clear that it was sort of somewhere in the middle. And let me read you this quote here. This is from uh, this is from Tom's Hardware, uh, written by Michelle Earhart yesterday, because I think this is a very relevant point. Quote, the statement reiterates earlier bans from 2017 and 2013, but also addresses new services that were not mentioned previously. These include bans on accepting virtual currency as payment, as well as on offering exchange services between cryptocurrencies and more traditional currencies like the yuan and the U.S. dollar. The statement also prohibits Chinese financial institutions from offering cryptocurrency savings on trust services, as well as prevents firms from using crypto as an investment target. Crypto exchanges, and this was your point. Uh, And initial coin offerings are both banned as well, although individuals can still continue to hold cryptocurrency. So, mostly a reiteration, maybe a little bit of an expansion uh, around the edges, which brings me uh, to my question to you, because I know you've been watching it and thinking about it, which is the statement out of Treasury today.
2: Yeah, you know, even before we get to the Treasury, I think that it's interesting to uh, uh, think about what happened there. Because you know they added a little more clarification and you know expanded the remit of the areas that they uh, wanted to uh, think about. And I think there were two reasons for them to do that. One is is because of the level of speculation. And so they're really trying to tamp down on speculation. We all know, as Rao was talking about yesterday, that a lot of the leverage within the crypto area is in Asia, and that's specifically within China. And so the authorities are concerned about people getting carried away, especially from a retail perspective, and that undermining uh, any sort of of, of regulatory uh, 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 bounce, if you will. And I think there's a second thing that no one really is talking about, which is the uh, Digital assets that the people's Bank of china you know the the central banking uh digital currency that they're trying to uh, implement there's yep. a huge push by the p b o c to get this uh, started. The last thing that they want is competition from uh unregulated digital currencies, and so I think that this is a indication that uh, when the time comes, when push comes to shove, if there's any sort of uh, channel conflict, that they are going to come down hard on right. cryptocurrencies. So this is a shot across the bow from that, from that perspective.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The risk is uh, that the uh, tr- Chinese official state uh, central bank currency gets crowded out, and that's obviously not something they want. I guess a little bit of the acronym soup here. We have a CBDC- uh, from the PBOC called uh, DCEP, which is the <laughs> Digital uh, Currency Electronic Payment System. Uh, a little bit silly, uh, but obviously a very serious uh, initiative over there. And I just wanted to add, I just because you know something that you said triggered uh, in my mind. I wanted to read directly from uh, from the joint statement uh, from the uh, Chinese regulators yesterday, which was uh, recently cryptocurrency prices have skyrocketed and plummeted. And speculative trading of cryptocurrency has rebounded, seriously infringing on the safety of people's property and disrupting the normal economic and financial order. You know, it's so interesting when we talk about foreign countries, and this isn't a comparison in any way, US or China. But it's interesting when we talk about foreign countries, we always sort of uh, ascribe these like motives like, they're you know, they're doing this and they're manipulating that. When you know their guidance, if you actually read the language, which is interesting, kind of sounds a great deal like guidance we hear from our own regulators, right? Exactly. So I think that what's happening there,
2: uh, you know, Occam's Razor says that they just told you that uh, they don't like a whole bunch of speculation. I'm telling you, some of that's because of leverage, and uh, yeah. so they wanted to snuff that out. And uh, we should believe that. That is a primary reason that they issued their statement. And and when you go then to the Treasury statement, the Treasury statement was that every crypto transfer larger than $10,000 needs to be reported to the IRS. Um, I look at this as a similar sort of salvo uh, to what the Chinese have done. What they're basically saying is is, is that there is a lack of regulation in this market Uh, On the one hand, we're concerned about it from a speculative perspective, but on the other hand, in the United States, we're also concerned about it from a taxation perspective. I think what's really behind the statement from the US Treasury is that they want to make sure that uh, all sorts of transactions that uh, pass value from uh, capital gains are seen by financial institutions, brokers, broker-dealers, whether they are regulated by the US Treasury or, or not. And, uh, and so this is a, an attempt to put the crypto exchanges into uh, the regulatory remit of uh, the government, meaning that if you are the likes of Coinbase, hey, if people are making transactions over $10,000 the IRS wants to know about it.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, this sort of reminds me, it's kind of what we're just talking about, the reiteration versus new guidance question. I mean, I think that it's interesting because at some level, you have to think, if you're an an owner and operator of a business, uh, you're the CFO of a small family firm, you have to think that these folks must know large dollar value transactions have to be reported to the IRS is not news to any CFO, uh, right? So It sort of seems as though it's a recapitulation, a reiteration, and a making even more clear and specific the guidance uh, and the knowledge that was already out there.
2: Yes, it's a shot across the bow, basically, just like with the Chinese. What the US Treasury is saying, by the way, if you're speculating uh, or you're taking profits in crypto, as a lot of people are, because this is an asset class that has gone up, we want a piece of that. And the reason that we want a piece of it is because that's fair. Uh, we believe that they said, actually, at the same time, I, you know, I had two tweets that came out relatively short order that uh, the US Treasury, Biden's IRS, is taking a crackdown on the rich hiding income. They said that basically only 45% of uh, transactions that aren't wages and salary are being recorded in a way that we, we're taxing. We, we're only getting a grab of 40, 45%. So there's 55% of uh, the actual income that's non-wage, non-salary that's happening with the rich that we're not getting a piece of. And so this is part of an all-encompassing crackdown to make sure that the massive amounts of stimulus that are going through the government right now are paid for in part by taxation.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Yeah. And very well said. And by the way, to your point, talking about this shot across the bow, We also saw something uh, from OCC uh, talking about effectively reviewing all crypto-related guidance issued over the past year, this coming uh, from the new chief, uh, Michael Hsu. Uh, This actually has an impact on specifically the three crypto firms that were granted federal banking charters, Anchorage, uh, Protego, and Paxos, and for viewers, Of Real Vision Anchorage and Paxos. We've had both of their CEOs on, Diego Monica and, uh, of course, Chad Cascarilla from Paxos.
2: Yes. And, uh, you know, as you were saying that, I was looking at what the IRS was saying about uh, their just the general crackdown. Uh, Their statement said something about the IRS will be able to deploy this new information to better target enforcement activities, increasing scrutiny of wealthy evaders and decreasing the likelihood. That fully compliant taxpayers will be subject to costly audits. Um, so, what what's uh, what are we to make of this? Uh, just from, from a broader perspective, I think uh, the first thing to remember, you know, when people talk about MMT and things of that nature, uh, they have to understand that this isn't MMT at all. You know, people throw the term around; it's total bullshit when they say that you know now we're doing MMT. First of all, you don't do MMT. MMT is a framework. Secondly, MMT says that what you're supposed to do is uh, allow the private sector to uh, net save, that is, is the government to net dis-save until you reach full employment. This is exactly the opposite of that. Okay. What's happening is, is the Biden administration is saying that we don't believe in MMT. They're saying what we believe in is the fact that uh, to a degree, you can run deficits, but you can't run them ad infinitum. What we want to do is, is we want to spend, and we want to cover that spending in large part uh, by taxation, which is the opposite of MMT. What they're definitely telling you, therefore, is, you know, for lack of a better word, tax and spend. And then the question is, is, where do we get the money? And now they're giving you the mechanism for which they, for what they, how they get the money, and then the question becomes: Is this net stimulative or not? How how is this going to work out? You know, just from a GDP perspective, and I think that uh, you know, Keynesians they would tell you that uh, the marginal propensity to spend of the people that the Biden administration are going after, the richer, is lower than the marginal propensity to spend of the people that are getting tax cuts from the Biden administration, which are the working and the middle classes. And so as a result, even though this whole program is not, I repeat, not MMT, uh, they believe that it will be stimulative just because of the marginal propensity to spend.
1: Yeah, from those taxpayers who have benefited from it. It's an excellent, excellent point. Uh, And let me just throw this one final thing out there as we talk about the Biden administration and the political framework that exists in. Uh, If we remember, I think it was back in December, uh, that uh, Representative Maxine Waters, who is the chairwoman of the uh, House Financial Services Committee, issued a a letter, I believe, to the Biden administration uh, saying that all OCC guidance on cryptocurrency uh, during the Trump administration should be either reviewed or rescinded. Uh, So there is definitely a bit of a change, it seems, uh, a sea change in in the overall tone uh, in the way that different parties uh, here in the U.S. view cryptocurrency,
2: yes, um, and you know, just to to go on to this whole concept of you know uh, stimulus and whether or not it's going to have a, a positive impact into Q2 uh, and 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 the second half of the year, especially to the degree that we have a government which is constrained by uh, political uh, partisan infighting. So the question is, is whether or not we can get more stimulus uh, or if we need more stimulus. I think that uh, we have to remember that Nancy Pelosi, uh, Joe Biden, the old people who run the uh, Senate, people like Chuck Schumer, they're all old school uh, Democrats. These are what I would consider you know, what 30 years ago were called new Democrats. Those are the people who got religion about uh, fiscal probity, and so uh, th- what they're telling you is 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 that we're not going to deficit spend, uh, we're we're going to tax, and uh, the question is is where do we get those taxes from, and uh, you know if the stimulus that we've injected into the economy thus far doesn't get us over the hump for Q3 and Q4. We're going to double down on more stimulus, but it's going to be funded by taxation. So, I think from a policy perspective, this is what we have to get our heads around. This is what's coming down the pike, potentially that's negative for uh, asset prices, because obviously, uh, you know, the holders uh, of assets are the ones who are going to get the hammer
1: hit on the head. Yeah, extremely important point, whether you love it or you hate it. That's just the reality uh, of the new uh, administration that we find ourselves in and where Congress is at. Incredibly important point. Um, I should say, and everyone knows that I'm just an unabashed Real Vision fanboy, but it's, it's great to have these conversations with you. And one of the reasons why I enjoy uh, doing these shows with you, Ed, is because I really believe uh, that uh, Real Vision is the only place anywhere right now covering cryptocurrency, digital assets, as a macro asset class. Uh, and that's something that you just don't see. There's a lot of great macro coverage, obviously, in the world. Uh, there's some great crypto coverage in the world. But bringing them together, the kind of conversation that you and I are having, the kind of conversation uh, I had with Raul yesterday, the conversation that Jack and Weston had, this idea of digital assets as a macro asset class, I think this is the future. I think we're ahead of the pack here.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, I was talking to Jeff Snyder about this earlier today, and he made he had some thoughts we didn't explore uh, completely that made me uh, make some second guessing. Uh, I think what Jeff Snyder said this is on the plus tier. We did an RV live at eleven. He basically said that when you look at what the central bank is doing in terms of expanding their balance sheet, they're creating asset swaps. What they're doing is is they're saying. Uh, there are these assets that are in the financial economy in the private sector. We are going to swap those with newly created reserves, and therefore, in the private sector, instead of having those assets on their balance sheet, you know whether they be mortgage backed securities or treasury bonds they 're going to have reserves. Uh, people have been calling that printing money uh, Jeff Snyder he takes uh, Uh, umbrage at the concept that that's printing money. It's not. It's just an asset swap from his perspective. And the question, therefore, is, just from a crypto perspective, is uh, the expansion of the monetary base, what impact does that have on currency debasement, on inflation, to the degree that uh, it's just an asset swap? Uh, And his answer is it has none whatsoever whatsoever. Uh, and what that means is, is, is that even though a lot of people are moving into crypto, because they believe in currency debasement, they believe that currencies are being debased, they believe that uh, we are getting inflation, uh, actually, that's not what's happening. So I think that's an interesting point, and I, I largely agree with the point that he's making. It doesn't diminish from the value of the crypto space. But it does tell you that we're in a specific regime uh, uh, where the the zeitgeist of crypto has a lot to do with currency debasement. But we were also in a currency regime uh, in 2009 where everyone was saying that QE is hyperinflationary when it wasn't. Right. So this regime will yeah. be over, and then we'll just have to see
1: what happens to this macro space uh, when that regime ends. Yeah, so well said, boy. Uh, Jeff Snyder at Alhambra Investments, uh, one of the smartest guys in the fixed income space in terms of his ability to break this down, uh, look at the data. You know, Jeff Snyder, uh, Ed Harrison, if that's not plus tier content, I don't know what is.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, and you know, by the way, uh, you know, I kept him for an hour and then we had like a good 15 or 20 minutes of questions afterwards, and the questions kept on piling up even after we uh, we ended the the talk there were still more questions being asked. So he's a, he's a great person
1: to talk to. Yeah, definitely. I've had the pleasure of interviewing him. Just an incredibly deep thinker. Let's uh, hit a few more of these questions. I know we've been running long almost every day we've been doing the show, but there's just so much to cover. The questions are so great, uh, and we really want to engage. This one comes to us from TomTom, Tom, one of our regular viewers, uh, and it's to you, uh, Ed. What do you think of the CPI numbers, jobs numbers, and Fed thinking about tapering? Will it impact the crypto market later this year?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I don't have a firm view on the crypto side of things. Let me just yeah. run through my thinking and see if anything comes out of that. Really I think, two
1: questions there. It's the CPI numbers, the jobs numbers, and Fed thinking, and then what do you think about the crypto market impact? But really interested in the first part of that question.
2: Yeah, um, the, what I believe is that, uh, just going back to Jeff Snyder, his framing of the question, I think, makes a lot of sense. That is, is, is that from a uh, mechanistic perspective, there is no direct uh, transmission mechanism from central bank activity to inflation or to employment. So when the government gave the Fed a dual mandate, uh, interest rates and, uh, or, or, sorry, uh, inflation and employment uh, really... You know the Fed's been making it up the whole time as to how that how they would be able to get there. Their big tool is um, is interest rates, but interest rates really only affect the price of money. Uh, you know they affect the financial economy and through a convoluted mechanism, you know have an impact, uh, but it's not a first order impact. So when you we think about the CPI, um, you know we're. Really, um, when we think about the Fed and the CPI, it's it's complicated by that factor. But you know, the Fed has its mandate; they're they're told to do something, and so they're going to do what they can. And what they've decided they're going to do is completely ignore inflation for the time being and focus on employment. And I think this is very important because they're really one of the only major central banks that has a dual mandate. Most other major central banks only care about uh, inflation. Yeah. The Fed is telling you we're completely forgetting about the thing that central banks are, are told to do, and we're only going to focus on this other thing. And that other thing is short of uh, the, a level of by seven or eight million. So, hmm. you know, seven or eight million is a lot. A uh, one million ad uh, of non farm payrolls. Is a great a number. How many months like, like that can we get going forward? Let's say we can get three or four. Then we can have like 500 or 600,000. What that's telling you is, is that we don't get back to square one for a very long time a year, two years, who knows? And so to me, that suggests that the Fed's ability to taper is limited. That's, wow. that's how I would put the whole thing.
1: Boy, that is just the ground zero core of everything that's happening right now on the macro side. Absolutely right. If you think about the ECB, obviously a single mandate. Um, that's probably the influence of uh, Deutsche of the of the German uh, central bank, uh, with the fear of inflation being the primary motivator. And as you say, it's like the uh, Fed has effectively forgotten the second part of the dual mandate, the part that central banks around the world focus on. But again, another point that you hit that really is. Right to the core, and not the kind of news that you hear on the news cycle, which is what happened today or yesterday, but the big picture that we try to do here at RVDB and at Real Vision more generally, this idea of paying attention to the stock variables and not just to the flow. You know, you get a good print, a number that looks good, that would look good by any other standard, but that low base effect being off 7 to 8 million jobs on non-farm payrolls, way below trend, such a crucial point. Yeah, so
2: I think that uh, unless you don't believe the Fed, which much of the market doesn't, uh, you you you've got to understand that their hands are tied. So either they go back on their guidance and they say, you know what, we were lying to you, or uh, we're not going to see tapering for a long time. Uh, then, as for the the actual numbers and and where they're going to go, I have a a, a strong suspicion that. When you have eight to nine million people unemployed, I don't care whether they're getting STEMI checks or not. Uh, that that's a huge output gap. And right. that tells you that inflation is not embedded. It tells you that you you're getting a step level change. And then once the stimulus is out, uh, the sugar high runs out, then you you're still left with eight to nine million people, a massive gap. And to be honest, you don't, you don't get inflation in, in those scenarios. Uh, you need a mechanism to get me there. Uh, please tell me what that mechanism is. I, I don't see it.
1: Yeah, such a good point. If I didn't have a job, I wouldn't be buying a new car, right? Just kind of common sense uh, type stuff. Here's and, you know,
2: I, let, let me tell you, though, um, uh, Gabrielle Hughes, who uh, we work with, uh, I asked her to take a look at some stories that were relevant to today. Uh, so that we, we could talk about them in the context of the market action. And one of the ones that she came up with is uh, the fact that there are a lot of states that are about to cut those stimulus checks off. So, to me, uh, the fact that we're about to, uh, we still have this gap, and then we're about to cut off stimulus checks for a wide swath of people, or even, uh, you know, you can call it extra stimulus. That suggests that we're about to see, you know, how good this economy is without government largesse. Um, and uh, I suspect it's not as good as a lot of people think.
1: And what will you be watching on your macroeconomic dashboard to make that determination? Whether that thesis is playing out. In other words, if this economy isn't as good as people think it is, what are you going to be looking at to tell you that's the case? What numbers?
2: I'm looking at uh, jobless claims, and I'm looking at the jobs numbers. So I think the 200-some uh, print that we had is, t- is too low. The million expected is not sustainable over the long term. It's going to be somewhere in between. Uh, before we had this RVDB, I was going to look to see where we were at this point in the last cycle in terms of uh, jobless claims because there's a churning effect in the initial parts of the recovery from a deep recession. You know, we got to like 695,000 jobless claims on a weekly basis at the peak of the last cycle and then we slowly trended down. We're now in the mid 400s now after you know, off the charts levels during the lockdown. 445,000, 444,000, I think that was the number. You know, that's pretty high. But uh, if we, we aren't getting that much of a churning effect in terms of the economy, it yeah. should be enough to get us to five or 600,000 uh, jobs uh, per month. And I think that number c- comes down, 450, 000, the 450,000, the 440,000 comes down slowly into the 300s. Uh, so those are the numbers I'm looking for, uh, those two numbers. Yeah, and, I mean, and by the way, let me just say that those are the two numbers that the Fed's looking at too. Obviously, because if they're thinking about jobs, that's what they really care about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the most serious issue facing the economy, of course, is the number of people who have jobs. It's absolutely critical, and those numbers, uh, it's easy to talk about them uh, in an abstract way, but these are these are people's livelihoods and something I mean, that's just incredibly important uh, to get right. And now, Ed,
2: let me, let me let me say, by the way, in a crass way, that what if? Let's just say that you uh, you're unemployed and uh, you, you're looking for a job. And I think f- for a lot of unemployment checks, you have to show that you're looking for a job. You have to apply for uh, for jobs. Uh, you find some jobs and they're paying, and those jobs are like you know seven dollars and seventy five cents an hour, uh, ten dollars an hour. Uh, is is and and you have to uh, put bread on the table. Is that you know? So are we gonna cut people off so that they can go to those jobs so they can just barely make ends meet? So we can go back to this whole secular stagnation economy that we used to have. I mean, that's basically what we're saying, right?
1: Yeah, And it's also the, the implicit, I guess the flip side of that is the potential crowding out uh, effect. If people are making more uh, from the from the checks. Why would you want to take a job as, an, as a rational economic actor when you could be earning more for your family and yourself? Uh, by continuing to stay on unemployment benefits, it's an intractable problem.
2: Yeah, I mean we're we're in a difficult situation, uh, and I think that we're also at a uh, you know we're we're at an inflection point in terms of how we think about
1: solutions, and I haven't seen any great solutions as yet. Yeah, yeah, a very sober issue. Uh, and now, from the ridiculous to the sublime, Echoing Owl asks, "What's Ashes and Ed's drink of choice?" as you watch your own crypto thesis unfold <laughs>
2: you know what uh, if, if we're going to go to that question ash i'm going to i'm going to attack on the question before i answer mm. i heard you talking to tony greer uh on tuesday and you were telling him you don't have a driver's license you haven't had a driver's yeah. license in 5 years yeah <laughs> what is going on can you please explain this to
1: me I am a creature of Manhattan, Ed. And uh, listen, cabs, Uber, Lyft, subway, buses, I'm a public transportation guy, man. It's easy to get around. And uh, the only time you really need a car uh, is when you want to leave Manhattan, right? Yes. And unfortunately, over the last 18 months, I have never wanted to leave Manhattan more. Uh, and I didn't have one. I just let it expire. I let it lapse. And then I called up one day or whatever, wrote him an email. And they were like, yeah, of course. But you got to come in and take the written test and the driving test and I was like you you got to be kidding me and I I have been working and I have not had a chance to do it.
2: Wow, that is something. And so what do you uh, when when you're drowning your sorrows about the fact that you have not had a license in years and you're going to fail your test to get a mm-hmm. new one, what are you
1: drinking? It's always it's always the white tea that I like uh, am knocking back to uh, stay focused <laughs> and stay awake and uh, I'm not a big drinker but when I do drink it is uh, it's beer. I'm a beer guy.
2: Yeah, I used to be a beer guy. I always was. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we were just talking about allergies. I have some sort of, uh, you know, it like stuffs me up. Uh, uh, and so I've switched over to wine. Uh, I, I drink uh, red wine now. I know it's boring. I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but what, what can I do? You know, you were definitely a red wine guy
1: at. <laughs> I'm not, though. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm definitely a beer guy, but, you know, what can I do? I'm not buying it, man. I see you sniffing the bouquet and like, you know, the cork and all that stuff. Um, all right, Ed, Here's here it is. The last one from Josh T. Is buying the Ash NFT a good plan for my retirement, or should I wait until the Ed version, not financial advice, but never invest in anything that's an Ash NFT?
2: Well, you know, I have the answer to that, Ash, because you haven't even thought about this.
1: Okay, because Jack
2: and I, we've thought about a SPAC. We call it the when uh you know when everything collapses, we'll be there to pick off. That would that would be our SPAC. Your NFT is the cabinet that is missing from your background shot. You need to have a a a picture of you doing the Real Vision Daily Briefing with the cabinet in the background and sell that as an NFT. <laughs> I think
1: that's that's your your NFT right there. You know, that was my mother's response, too, when we switched sets. She was like, what's what's the deal? Why are you missing? I'm like, it's it's like an artistic thing. It's a gap. And she was like, yeah, not buying it. Get yourself another gap. <laughs> Fill it in.
0: <laughs>
1: uh, any final thoughts you have here on a more serious note uh, as, we, as we come to the end? Because we've discussed a lot of important points on the crypto side, on the macro side, on the market side. Uh, final thoughts, final takeaways to leave our viewers with.
2: Yeah, I think the most important thing that I, I heard Jeff Schneider say is if you're thinking about a reflation on reflation off toggle, uh, which to a degree you are, if you're talking about the bond market, you know the yields being a toggle, then he says that you know when you look at the data, you can sniff out a positioning uh, uh, instead of a completely you know digital zero or a hundred on or off toggle. Uh, what we're looking for is we're looking for signs that there's reflation, uh, acceleration, or that there's a deceleration uh, that's coming. And w- there are ways to look at the data and to see that. I'm looking at it in terms of uh, jobless claims, and I'm also looking at it in terms of jobs. But there are other data points that will tell us, you know, how good this economy is going to be when the full reopening is upon us. Uh, We just have to wait and see what those data are. But I believe that within the next three months, uh, we will have an answer. And you need to be positioned by that
1: time. Yeah. Once again, Ed, we've run over time here. I think our original thinking was this was going to be a 30-minute show. But we keep running over time. And while we're having this conversation, let's throw it out to the viewers. Uh, Would you like this show to be like a 30-minute show, short and sweet? Uh, or do you appreciate a little bit more uh, in terms of the context? Uh, I haven't really made up my mind yet. I don't know if you have any thoughts, Ed. Yeah, I,
2: I, you know, I just run with what uh, the host. You're the host. What the host says, and uh, I, I don't have any thoughts. But I do like the fact that you threw it out to the audience. I would like to know, you know, how tight do you want it to be? Is this tight right. enough? I think we we went through a lot of different ideas. Uh, to me, it felt right. But uh, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say.
1: Yeah, this show we've really just engineered around what people want. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we're not a network. We don't have the constraints that networks do. So we can kind of do whatever works best uh, for the viewers. So it would be great to hear a little bit about what you guys think and what you guys would like to see in terms of Lens. So leave us some comments uh, and let us know. With that said, uh, thank you so much, Ed, for joining us. Thanks, Billy Ray. (laughs) <laughs> thanks, Lewis. I always goof this. Uh, <laughs> thanks for watching, everyone. We really enjoyed it, and we enjoyed your questions and participation. Thanks again.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.